You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Are you a Gemma Purvis reporter for Campus Review? And I'm speaking to Jamie Harrison, who is an adjunct professor at University of New South Wales in the Faculty of Engineering and one half of the startup company Clearways. Congratulations, Jamie, on being shortlisted for the Wolfson Economics Prize. Before we get into your actual submission for the prize, could you perhaps let the listeners know what the Wolfson Prize is? No problems, and thanks, thanks Gemma. Um, so the Wilson Economics Prize is the second biggest uh, economics prize in the world after the Nobel uh, Economics Prize. And the, the, the Wilson Prize is founded and funded by Lord Simon Wilson. And Lord Wilson um, is interested in very active public policy reform. Um, so every couple of years, uh, Lord Wilson poses a new challenge. And for 2017, um, the public policy challenge that, that he put out there was how to address congestion and improve funding for our roads in a way that proves uh, not only congestion but safety and environmental outcomes and and other aspects of uh, the road network. Um, Now it's as you say he poses different questions every time which does make it a very interesting competition I guess as well you're getting very bespoke research and ideas for the competition, which is great. One of the things that's interesting is you and your business partner, Russell King, are one of the five shortlisted entries. Now, a number of the other entries are actually looking at ways to, I guess, ration access to roads, whereas you guys have taken quite a different approach to dealing with congestion and so on. Would you perhaps like to explain to us how you came up with the idea of pay-as-you-drive as as opposed to pay-as-you-go? No no problems at all. Most of the submissions um, all stem from road pricing or road user charging. And our perspective on this, I guess, we we feel is different in in a couple of areas. So the first point I make is that road pricing or road user charging is something that has been very well studied and documented in academic and literature and various research studies, not only over many years, but actually many decades. So as far as a concept, uh, price signalling, you know, the concept of demand management, not just supply, which is increasing the supply of road space, it's been very well studied, but never actually put into practice as far as broad-based road pricing is concerned. And our perspective on that is that the key impediment to introducing road pricing is one of an acceptable political pathway. It's not something that has been palatable or acceptable to uh, any any government over a long period of time in terms of congest- uh, addressing congestion, let alone road funding. So we first focused, Russell and I, on establishing an acceptable political pathway for road pricing and then some commercial and technology innovation to, to back that up. And, and what we believe we've got is something called customer-led demand management. So a system of road pricing that is actually attractive to customers or road users and has a number of benefits. Um, and to your point earlier, um, is all about incentivizing smart driving behavior, um, i.e. traveling outside of the peak where possible, or remoting your journeys, moving from car or road, road traffic to public transport or, or, or other means of transport. So it's about incentivizing smart choices, not, say, penalizing you know, congestion-causing behavior or anything else like that. So the idea of incentivizing it, I guess, carrot as opposed to stick, is an interesting one. Now, the 
idea, as you say, of the pay-as-you-drive as opposed to pay-as-you-go. Now, pay-as-you-go is basically based on people paying a tax or excise duty on the fuel that is used to power yes. their cars. And as you mentioned, changing the modes of transport. So with, you've got the rise of electric vehicles and also even things like biofuels, which of course generate less excise duty for governments than standard uh, other fuels. So yes. how are you going to incentivize people to move onto the pay-as-you-drive scheme that you're proposing? So firstly, I think you've picked up on a really important backdrop to all of this, and that is that there are, there are two or three major trends that need to be considered when, when looking at this. And they kind of fall across three horizons. There's the here and now, which is congestion. So increasing urbanisation and population growth in pretty much any country is the other key drivers to increasing traffic congestion. Obviously, that plays out differently in, in different cities, depending on, you know, uptake of public transport and so forth. But that's the key drivers. And that's the, a challenge now. And it's a challenge that is predicted to get worse. So in somewhere like Sydney or in most cities across Australia, congestion is pre predicted to double both in terms of the amount of congestion, but also the economic impacts of congestion over the next 10 to 15 years. The next horizon is around declining fuel tax revenues, which of course is the primary way in which our road networks have been funded to date. And that involves a tax on, on, on every litre of fuel, petrol or diesel uh, going into cars. And of course, that's um, firstly around the technology disruption around in, the increasing fuel efficiency of uh, internal combustion engines or petrol and, and diesel cars. So as they consume uh, less and less fuel, the, the fuel tax revenues that come from that are under decline. But then that leads to the third horizon, and that is the massive technology disruption coming in the form of alternative fuel vehicles, electric vehicles or biofuels or, or whatever else. So, of course, people uh, today buying a $100,000 Tesla are effectively opting out of that fuel tax system, and so those revenues go. And as EV uptake increases, that is a significant fiscal challenge for governments. But uh, an even bigger one, we would suggest, is that the, the advent of autonomous vehicles, so Google driverless cars or, or one of the many companies looking at autonomous driving, the, the potential, nobody knows yet, but the potential for autonomous vehicles is significant as far as social benefits, you know, enabling people who might not be able to drive or get around or, or have mobility as, as that accessible is, is huge. There's a lot of benefits there, but it also has the potential to increase congestion through more trips being taken, perhaps by people who wouldn't be able to drive or wouldn't drive at the moment. And so there's those, those three major shifts, the here and now sometime soon as far as fuel tax revenue decline and that major technology disruption through EVs and autonomous vehicles. So that's the backdrop. It's quite a complex backdrop. Before we move on to the next point, is it predicted that self-driving or automated vehicles will increase congestion as opposed to decreasing it? This is an area where there's still a lot of conjecture in, in terms of research and, and commentary. I think that the balance of it is that the indicators are that it will increase both total kilometres total vehicle kilometres um, travelled and the number of trips. And that, that comes from a number of drivers. So firstly, the very young or the very old, so gr groups in our society who might not be able to drive, either from a licensing perspective or due to health reasons or whatever else, be able to drive at the moment in an autonomous vehicle world. They, they have access to the roads, so that uh, increases demand. But also, as the amenity of vehicles changes, i.e. I can be doing something else in a vehicle, 
rather than simply driving and, and controlling the vehicle, there's the potential there for people uh, to take more trips or even longer trips because they can be, uh, I don't know, working, responding to email, watching the television, watching a movie, whatever else. And, and so there's a number of shifts like that that indicate that autonomous vehicles means increased congestion. Okay. I guess the rise of the shared car ownership schemes as well as the autonomous vehicles, the plus side of it could lead to decreases in private car ownership. Yes. But I guess if the roads are being utilised more, because I can't remember what the figures are, but the figures for the actual utilisation of privately owned vehicles is actually quite low, isn't it? They tend to be stuck in one position for something like 80% of the time. Yes, and 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 that's the key play for car sharing, that it increases the utilisation of a single asset a single car. It has a number of parking benefits in addition to a whole range of other economic and, and potentially congestion benefits. But shared ownership, shared mobility is a really important consideration, and particularly in an autonomous vehicle world. And, and you know, most commentators argue that it is likely that with autonomous vehicles, we're, we're likely to see a significant uptake of shared ownership of, of cars. So you're buying a mobility as a service. However, that doesn't offset the drivers that I was talking about a moment ago in terms of increasing vehicle kilometres travelled, increasing the, the number of trips due to those other demand drivers with autonomous vehicles. Okay, so you and Russell have mooted the idea of the pay-as-you-drive scheme where effectively people would be opting in to a different method of paying for the roads, wouldn't it? They would get some way where they wouldn't be paying excise on the fuel that they use, but they would be paying per kilometre travelled, is that correct? Indeed. So the the idea and the the essence of, of, of our solution is Firstly, an opt-in system so that people would have the choice of opting out of fuel tax, which in Australia is 40.1 cents a litre, so perhaps about a third, either side of a third of of people's fuel bill, and opting into a pay-as-you-drive road usage plan. And and this is the the first area where you've got some choice, opting out and opting in, but also a choice then of opting into a pay-as-you-drive plan, kind of like a mobile phone plan. So the pay-as-you-drive plan that you opt into might be a different plan from the one that I opt into because yours and my driving needs or mobility needs might be different. Concept of choosing between different mobile phone plans. Second key feature is a price guarantee. So in in opting out of fuel tax and opting into a pay-as-you-drive road usage plan, people would get a price guarantee that they will never pay more than if they had remained paying fuel tax. And that's a really important part of the acceptability of this this solution and in particular the the public and the political pathway on this. So I guess the whole point of your plan, it's not about increasing the revenue raised for the government in order to build new roads and improve supply. It's more about reducing the loss of revenue due to the changes in vehicle technology as well as improved technology that improves the fuel efficiencies. Yes, it, it, it is about that. But it's, it's also about, as I said, incentivising people to make smart choices where they can. So carrot, not stick. So with that price guarantee, they, they can't lose. They won't pay more than if they were paying fuel tax. 
But if they are able to change some of their driving behaviours, maybe take more more trips that are outside of the peak rather than inside of the peak, the potential to make some significant cost saving. So to, to put that into context, a typical driver, there's no such thing as a typical driver, but average driving kilometres per year, say on the east coast of Australia, is either side of 15,000 kilometres a year. And in an average, say, four or six cylinder car, people are spending about $2,500 a year in that scenario on fuel, of which somewhere between, depending on their fuel efficiency and fuel purchased and so forth, somewhere between $750 and $1,100 of that bill is in fuel tax. In the scenario that somebody can actually largely drive outside of peak rather than in the AM or PM peak, they could make a saving of, say, two or $300 over a year off that fuel tax bill. And so that's where the carrot comes in around incentives and rewards for smart driving behaviour or smart choices. Okay. Now, the way that you would do this is that you attach a dongle to the car, don't you, so that you're tracking the time it travels and where it's actually travelling. Yes, yes. Now, you do mention in your submission that this is going to be a more acceptable concept for people due to the changing social norms regarding privacy issues and so on. But I imagine there are still going to be some concerns about how the government would manage this data. Uh, Indeed. How would you address those concerns? So, so there's a few elements to this. So firstly, it's a voluntary opt-in scheme. So if somebody is particularly concerned about privacy, you know, nobody is being forced to, to opt-in or to move to this system. So if there are significant privacy concerns for, for some people, yes, they've still got a choice. Secondly, as you, as you alluded to there, that people's privacy trade-offs have evolved over time with the advent of the smartphone, things like Google and Facebook. And what we're seeing now is large parts of society actually prepared to make a trade-off around functionality or around access to social networks online or whatever else that might be around their privacy. However, still given some particular guarantees and rules of the road, as it were, in terms of the use of their data. This is where actually another part of our solution comes in, in that rather than being a government-led scheme, which is how most, say, taxation-type schemes would be, what this is is more a pay-as-you-drive product. Hence, what what is in our solution is that it would be trusted retail brands, your local supermarket or your telco provider, your mobile phone provider or company or your insurance company that is actually uh, selling and uh, retailing and supporting this product. And that's where I guess there is a difference in terms of people's acceptance of privacy, the use of data and so forth between private sector type organisations and the public sector. Uh, Some of that's perception, um, some of that's just around the intent or the roles that each of those different organisations might play in, in the economy. But that's also a key part of our solution. Okay. You also mentioned rewarding good behaviour and uh, I guess you call it the gamification of driving, which has some minor issues, but we won't go into that, I don't think, this time around. But where you say you're going to reward safer drivers, so as people who don't break the speed limit or who don't get into accidents, how would that be rewarded? Yes. So what we've got the concept of is in the solution is that the key driver or incentive of behaviour change driving outside the peak, for instance, um, is the, is the, the price signalling, being able to you know, uh, save money in your hip pocket. Um, however, 
what what we're baking into the solution is also, as you say, the gamification. So that there's the concept of rewards points, clearways points, if you were, that that can also be awarded um, for again good driving behaviour or smart driving choices. So extra points for driving outside of the peak around special events would be an example around footy games or New Year's Eve or, or whatever else that might be. But potentially also points um, rewarded um, for safe driving behaviour or efficient driving behaviour, not hard braking or not hard acceleration or whatever else. And this is, this is something that insurance companies, both in Australia and around uh, the world, are already starting to look at in terms of pay-as-you-drive insurance. Um, and rewarding safe driving behaviour there, again, carrot, not stick, um, and something we think that is, is entirely compatible with the, the Pays to Drive Road Usage System that, that we're proposing. Well, that makes a lot more sense because I one of the things I think people would raise as a concern is, are these dongles that are attached to the onboard diagnostics of your car, are they going to report you back to the... RMS saying this person was speeding at this time of day. So it's not about policing it and they wouldn't be reporting back into the government agencies so you'd then be getting a fine because the dongle had found so you out. None of this is about um, either compliance um, or fines or anything else like that at all. That, that would, would not be compatible at all with the solution that we've got or the, um, the, the, the customer premise or the customer promise here at all. So it's, I, I guess... At, at its heart, it's kind of like a Fitbit for your car. So the concept of this, this dongle, a uh, Fitbit. It, it's a Fitbit for your car. So just as people sort of have goals around sort of 10,000 steps a day or, or whatever else that might be, this is, the, this is similar sort of information around your driving, giving you that feedback in a real time or, or, a, or a, a very sort of um, time proximate way so that then you learn what are good driving behaviours that might be more safe or more fuel efficient or more time efficient as far as how you use the roads or whatever else in terms of your own needs or schedule and giving you that feedback to, again, make the smartest possible choice for your circumstances. That's all that it's about. It's not about compliance or fines or anything like that at all. Okay. That, that is uh, reassuring to know because I'm sure that you know, even the safest of drivers do occasionally make errors and the idea that your car is going to report, back to, re- report on you would be quite off-putting, I could imagine. But that's uh, a really clear explanation. So thank you for that. Now, one of the other things that you, uh, you we mentioned here was that the cars would have a dongle attached to their onboard diagnostics, which would then connect i guess to the company that is monitoring or running the scheme would there be any other requirements for infrastructure to be installed because i imagine that would be a major issue in rolling out a scheme like that not not at all so we've we've based the the technology aspect of our solution is um, largely around this obd dongle or obd adapter a fitbit for your car these are already becoming quite popular in the United States and Europe, largely around that Fitbit for your car um, or in the insurance industry around pay-as-you-drive insurance type schemes. And we're really leveraging that same technology but for pay-as-you-drive um, road usage charging. It depends on a you know a, a $50 adapter, which would just get bundled into your overall pay-as-you-drive plan, um, keeping costs down. 
um, it is talking to the, the engine computer. So things like when the engine light comes on or there's particular error codes or whatever else, that could be leveraged um, in order to provide people uh, information or options around car servicing or, you know, if there's a, their car needs some attention. But primarily it's about understanding the fuel consumption of the car, kilometres travelled, and these dongles have their own GPS um, and, and SIM card that, that connects the car to the cloud, if you like. You get a connected car and all of the other benefits that come along with a connected car with this technology. So I guess that would then enhance people who've got perhaps an older car with a GPS system that isn't currently connected via uh, to the internet so that it would give you real-time updates on traffic issues and so on. Yes, so uh, very much this is about trying to get as much information in a safe way, not in a distracting way, to a driver around traffic conditions, um, the the cost of journeys, um, their driving choices and their driving behaviours. And it's all about empowering a driver to make the best or the smartest possible choice for their circumstances. So whatever information that can be brought to bear in a relevant way, in a timely way, uh, to enable people to make those smart choices, that's the essence of what the, the technology part of this is about and how it plugs into the, the broader solution um, or scheme. Now, one thing we haven't touched on, which we probably should address, is the one of the key components of your scheme would be mandating the enrolment of electric vehicles into this scheme. Now, yes. I guess one of the issues with electric vehicles is, of course, they're not paying fuel excise. So they're effectively using the cars, or sorry, the roads for free. Now... The argument for people who own these vehicles is that they're paying a significant upfront cost for the longer term, lower running costs. How would you get around that political issue of mandating the enrolment of electric vehicles in a pay-as-you-drive scheme? Indeed. So I guess there are a few um, a few key points here. So firstly, as you point out, uh, people who um, uh, have made the decision to buy an electric vehicle now, um, they've effectively, um, in doing so, opted out of the fuel tax system. You know, their, their, their cars don't use fuel. And, and I guess that says something more about fuel excise or fuel taxes, um, uh, a, a revenue stream or a way of paying for our roads that perhaps is not keeping up with the technology disruption around EVs or, or indeed autonomous vehicles as they as they come online. The, the key issue here is fairness. So yes, somebody has made the investment in an electric vehicle and the benefits that come along with that, um, but in doing so, um, they're not contributing to the funding of our roads or paying paying for their road usage, and that's one of fairness. And and right now, um, if we if we look at Australia. Um, 1% of Australia's fleet of vehicles um, are electric vehicles. So there are 17 million vehicles in Australia. Um, 170,000 of those are electric vehicles. And overwhelmingly, they are Teslas, um, would, be the, would be the key brand um, in terms of sales and so forth is concerned. And they are cars that are uh, retail for over $100,000. So in that scenario, I would suggest that it's not necessarily the, you know, um, the, the small decrease in operating costs that has been the primary driver of people buying those cars. They bought them for a whole bunch of other reasons. Um, and it comes back to that fairness point around um, everybody needing to pay their way on the roads um, as a key part of the way our cities and regions work. Yeah, and I guess whilst the percentage is still quite low, it would be a good idea to roll out sooner rather than later where any kinds of 
objection or any political issues are greatly reduced when it's only 1% of the vehicles. Absolutely. And, and this is something, you know, we're talking about electric vehicles right now. You know, this type of technology disruption and the ramifications of that as far as society is concerned, the way cities work or um, revenues for government or anything else is concerned, we've seen that in, with other technology waves or disruption. This is, this is just the, the particular technology disruption now that we're seeing as far as cars, driving, um, and, and the way our road network works um, now. Okay. So it sounds like you guys really kind of covered all the bases. How would you go about rolling it out? I assume you wouldn't want to open it up nationwide. You need to actually test it. No, absolutely. And, and so our, our proposition um, uh, here... Uh, is to run a, a six-month trial, a six-month trial of 50,000 vehicles, um, working in collaboration with the University of New South Wales, um, as far as our research partner um, on, uh, is, is on that trial, um, and uh, a, a collection of, a small collection of those retail brands, an insurance company, a telco, um, potentially a rewards scheme or a supermarket, um, to you know, actually get a, a, a trial of 50,000 vehicles out with real customers and actually demonstrate the behaviour change that we're talking about, um, the consumer or the customer acceptability of the, the scheme that we're talking about, given that road pricing is something that has sort of been relegated to the, the theory books for decades. It's about trialling this in the first instance, but with a representative sample of, of the population. Would you want to open it up nationwide or would you try and keep it to a, a localised geographic area, say Sydney or Brisbane or Melbourne? You know, I guess you'd have 50,000 people in a geographic area. You'd have to go for one of the big urban centres. Our, our, our preference, um, and you know, we're, we're open to some, some you know, various options here, our, our preference at the outset is for it to be available Australia-wide um, and that's important, um, particularly to understand how this works in Perth versus how it might work in, in Sydney or Brisbane or Melbourne or Adelaide, but also how it works in cities versus how it works in regions. Clearly, you know, congestion is something that is um, what we see around cities where you've got agglomerations of people and economic activity. Um, however, you know, the funding of road infrastructure uh, and the mobility of our regions is also vitally important. So we want to see how it plays out across the nation um, and between cities, suburbs, regions, and et cetera. But there's some options within there in terms of different um, focus areas, both geographically or different parts of the population. And, and our, our intent is to run some micro trials within the, that 50,000 cohort um, to trial different pricing products, or there might be a particular focus on a particular city or a particular area. And we've got some flexibility to do that. Okay. Well, it sounds like a very interesting and quite a radical thought process. It's uh, great to see, though, that we are trying to address congestion. I mean, it's it's a massive issue. I know that this is a UK-based prize that you're up for, and London does have a congestion zone. It's not something that has ever been seriously discussed here. I guess politically it would just be too big an issue wouldn't it to try and implement it in Australia where we are so dependent on our cars yes yeah absolutely and look we, we're the only non-UK finalists um, in the Wilson Prize uh, both for this round and, and actually ever 
Uh, but I think what, what we're seeing here is that congestion and the sorts of issues that we've just been talking about, congestion in particular, but also the decline of fuel excise revenues and the, on, the, the upcoming disruption with EVs and, and autonomous vehicles is a global challenge. Um, uh, and that's why I guess you've got a, a range of people now actually focused on this. It's great that Lord Wilson and, and the judging panel that he's brought together on this is, has recognised that the range of ideas come from the, the five finalists and, and we're really keen to obviously see um, uh, the next round of the, the, the prize. We've got a secondary submission to put in to draw out some of the detail and some aspects of, of our solution. Well, good luck with that. And we uh, look forward to seeing what the, the winning prize is. Thank you, Gemma. Great to talk. Okay.